Welcome to the Accord Research Alliance podcast, where we talk with innovators who are committed to measuring what matters in Christ-centered relief and development. My name is Kristen Chuck, one of the hosts of this podcast and co-chair of the Accord Research Alliance. Today, I share with you a recent conversation I had with Alastair Sim, who after more than 10 years leading the program effectiveness research team at Compassion International, recently moved from his director role into a new role as principal scientific advisor on the newly formed monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning team. So today I talk with Alistair about something he's very passionate about, uh, championing the next generation of Merle monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning leaders. And we also talk about what it means to lead during this COVID-19 era that we're living through. So I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you do too. And I hope that Alistair's reflections bring you some encouragement and an opportunity for reflection in this season. Enjoy. Hi, Alistair. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak uh, on the podcast with me today. I know that we've been talking about doing this for some time, so it's nice that we're able to actually uh, connect on this. And the timing actually really seems fitting, given your recent role change within Compassion. So I'm hoping to start out if you could begin by giving us just a brief summary of Compassion International for listeners who might not be very familiar with the organization, and then also tell us what brought you to Compassion from a career in academia. Yeah, hi, Kristen. It's uh, good to be with you. And yeah, this has certainly been uh, on the boiler for some time, um, long before we actually kidnapped you into Compassion, I think. But um, <laughs> Yeah, I think given my own recent changes, as you say, it's it's probably timely to do it now and hopefully, uh, certainly is for me and hopefully helpful to the audience. So uh, very briefly, Compassion is a Christian child and youth uh, development agency uh, built on what we call our three C principles of being Christ-centered, church-based and child-focused. Uh, we've been in the business for over 60 years, um, working with working to help children thrive holistically uh, across their child-adult ad- developmental continuum. Um, we work in 25 countries, exclusively in partnership now with over 8,000 local churches. Um, for me, I got involved in Compassion nearly 13 years ago now. Um, it's my second career. I had a long academic career in medicine and health education and research and, and I guess governance as well. And it's a long story, but I got connected to Compassion through my wife, who was then working as the marketing communications manager for Compassion Australia. And basically, she got fed up with my skeptical scientific questions about impact and connected me with some program folks uh, at head office. Um, And to cut a long story short, uh, rather than answer all my questions, they actually offered me a job (laughs) in helping them find reliable and meaningful answers. So I think it was a classic put up or shut up. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I joined Compassion 13 years ago. And, you know... For me, back then, it was the right time for a career change. And particularly importantly, you know, I had someone on my my research team who was just ready to take over and 
take that team way beyond what I could do myself. And and time has proven that true and that she's done some remarkable things with the team. Um, so that was important for me to, to leave things in a healthy, healthy place. Um, and so I started my, my new, new career with Compassion. Oh, that's interesting. I did not actually know you got connected to Compassion through your wife. Yeah. She's, she's to blame. <laughs> she's to blame. Oh, yes. Okay. So we're going to blame her for, for the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, much like your career trajectory, um, the state of research and evaluation at Compassion has evolved a lot um, since mm -hmm. your time there. Um, so I'm wondering if you could also walk us through the history of research and evaluation at Compassion and your recent role change and just maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah. 13 years of history and hopefully two minutes. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was recruited to what was then called the Program Evaluation and Research Team. Um, and I was recruited by the then second director in the history of, I guess, research at Compassion. Um, it was still a pretty small team of four people. Um, and the focus was very much primarily on process type evaluation and descriptive types of research on mainly qualitative work and issues-based work rather than real impact focused or real effectiveness uh, outcome focused. Um, but when I joined the team, partly I was recruited because of my research background to perhaps grow that space. But it was also at the time where um, the sector had a huge thirst and a growing thirst for, for rigorous research. And it, it was the time where the, the influence of the, the RCT grade was increasing. And it, it was supporting that demand for stronger quantitative evidence of impact. And so, you know, having come from that medicine and health background, which is, you know, arguably the, the home of evidence-based programming, um, it just seemed a lot of the stars were aligning, if you like, and I was really keen to embrace these new trends in, in the sector, not really imagining that's why I was joining Compassion. So I really learned that when I got into, the, into this space. So, you know, when I first joined Compassion, I was really keen to, to learn the space. So I call it my Compassion Apprenticeship time. Um, just learning the NGO ropes and the context under which we were doing research and learning. Um, and I did that for two or three years. And then about 2011, I think it was, I was given the director role. And in taking over that role, we reshaped things a little bit to build our quantitative research capacity and particularly counterfactual based approaches to measuring true, true attribution of our, of our program effects. Um, and that, again, that was when Compassion as an organization was beginning to catch on to the, this importance of data. And so the mantra data is your friend was was being pushed around and I, I was quick to change it to only good data is your friend. And that kind of started that um, focus on making sure the data we use is, 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 good qual is as good quality as it possibly could be. Um, and we changed the name to program effectiveness research, you know, taking a stronger focus on research and 
and uh, impact measurement. Um, and I don't know if you noticed, but we kept that the acronym PER intact from those early days. Um, so that was that was an important thing from about 2011 onwards, but it did come at a cost of focusing on more impact and less on the routine monitoring and evaluation work. And so a couple of years ago, about 2018, a new team uh, focused on restoring those elements of program learning was was birthed from our team. Um, and then to, to rush through the history, most recently in 2020, we actually merged those two teams uh, into single, single multi monitoring, evaluation, research and learning. And today we're around 35 uh, staff members. So a substantial growth in Compassion's commitment to to having as broad-based um, measures of effectiveness from, from monitoring right through to, to strong learning and that learning feeding into, into um, good practice. From my perspective, uh, the most recent transition, I took this opportunity to move into an advisor role um, to promote our principles and standards for high quality and consistent learning across the whole team and I guess the organization. Um, with a special focus on our academic research partnerships. Um, another passion of mine, um, because it, I feel strongly that that bridges the gap between good developmental theory and rigorously developed measures into the practice of, of good program design and, and Merle. I guess the last thing I'd say in my long answer to your question um, was, you know, consistent with the topic of this podcast, these personal changes for me um, and these restructures was an opportunity for new leadership to step up and take the helm of responsibility and, and hopefully take things way beyond where they had been, uh, you know, with fresh blood and fresh insights and, and enthusiasm and probably more energy. Um, and the good thing for me is that I get to hang around and see all that happen without having all the responsibility that, that I had before. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I have one question for you to, to back it up. So I know I ask big sweeping questions in my <laughs> podcast, typically because it can be kind of hard to have a back and forth conversation um, via Zoom. But yeah. so you've said or you said kind of in the middle of, of your answer there, focusing on um, just the early days in your leadership on the mm -hmm. research team and compassion, the focus in the sector on counterfactual based measures of effectiveness which typically you carry out or you find through quantitative research do you feel that the sector or trends are swinging more back more towards qualitative or a mixed methods um approach and of course this is a loaded question as you know since I'm a qualitative <laughs> researcher but i'm curious for your take on that well i, I think it I think the, my personal mindset, and, and obviously many people, including yourself, I'm sure, is use the right methodology to answer the questions that are being asked. And so no single methodology or no single set of research data gives you all the answers. Um, so obviously, you know, defining the research question in fine detail um, is the most critical component of any any research methodology design. Um, so that's the most important thing. So it depends what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. in, 
so the methodology you use depends on, on what you're looking for. Um, but obviously, at its most simplistic, um, qualitative gives you much more depth of insights into what's going on. So to some extent, quant can tell you, is it working? Um, what is working? Um, what is not working? Uh, where it's not working? The whys really need qualitative insight. And uh, there, there's just no way around that. But for me, I, I think that the most exciting um, developments probably still to come is how you marry the two and get as comprehensive a picture as you can um, of effectiveness in a way that is helpful to program design and, and practice. Um, so the combination of the two has always been important to me. And as I should say, you know, we, um, as we were building our quantitative capacity in the team, we still had qualitative staff and we're keen to recruit more, including yourself, um, to make sure we didn't lose that, that element. But um, as always, when resources are limited, there's, there's roundabouts and swings in, in decision-making and, and the spending of those resources. So making sure you've got as comprehensive a service, if you like, from a methodological perspective is really important and I'm, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a person that believes in the importance of the polarization of whether you're a quant person or a call person um, mm -hmm. because they each bring different perspectives to to, uh, to learning about program effectiveness so we need both definitely mm -hmm. great well that's that's good insight for the folks listening who are building their evaluation and research teams. Hope that, so. That breath, yeah. Um, so, with regards to your just career trajectory, even just within Compassion, um, I've been, I guess, inspired is maybe the right word by how you've, you know, sort of managed to learn in each role, um, advance to maybe where there was opportunity or where you personally wanted your career to go and now have still been able to, you know, some, some people might see it as sort of stepping down or stepping away or subduing mm -hmm. a, a lower priority um, role. But yeah, for you, it's still a role where you're finding value in your, your career and sort of the path that you see for yourself. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, I, I, that's not a question that I have been here, but I'm sure there's people who are really curious about, you know, what, what drives you to do that? What does that look like for you? How do you feel personally about, you know, not just say advancing to the next um, management role, mm -hmm. but what does it look like to be a leader in the role where you are? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, it's, it's nice to think you were inspired. Um, it, it does come down to what presses your buttons, I think. Um, and I've never, I, I guess I've probably been a more of a reluctant leader than an aspiring leader. Um, I, I think for me, it's the big picture that's important. And I think you've probably even heard me say that I think, you know, in most, in most, areas and particularly in international development we should be ultimately working towards our own redundancy 
it's not about us it's about what we're trying to achieve and obviously as christians it's about the kingdom's growth um, not our own and i i you know without being too super spiritual about that i've tried to take that seriously and i think it's the way i'm wired anyway um i don't necessarily get a buzz out of personal accolades we all like that to some extent but seeing the fruit of your labors no matter where you are with within the um the overall team is way more important to me and i think also i guess i could call myself a good scientist so um good scientists should be very self-critical and able to self-analyze and regularly assess our own strengths and weaknesses um, so for me, I think I'm more of a builder than a manager, and um, in in this season of, of COVID reflection and our restructuring, I, I think for me it was gratifying to see the growth of the two teams and merging into one and going from four to 35 in a relatively short space of time. But it was also a reflection on me as hey, do I want to and B, am I able to carry forward that team and continue to grow it both in capacity if necessary, but also in, in influence. And um, I think I'm just more of a nuts and bolts guy that can build things rather than really want to climb the ladder. And I guess lastly, mm -hmm. I came into compassion having had a full academic career. And, you know, I'd climbed the academic ladder. I'd got as far as I could go. I'd, you know, I'd got my chair. I'd, you know, I was assistant dean for research. And, you know, I did all the right things there. And so I, perhaps there I'd proven myself more in those ways that I didn't really need to seek it, mm -hmm. joining Compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I appreciate the ability to kind of at those pivotal moments in your career reflect on you know, is this what I want? Am I best suited um, to take this role? Because not every opportunity is a good opportunity, right? So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's good, at least not for for you as an individual, perhaps. Um, but yeah, that leads me to my next question. So this is something that you and I have talked about a lot over the last couple of years of us knowing each other and working together and. Also me asking you to be on the podcast probably two or three years ago by now <laughs> at this point. I think I'm going to have a habit of um, our listeners are going to catch on to the fact that I don't publish podcasts very frequently. <laughs> they sit in the queue for a while, but when they get published, they're quite good. Let me tell you. Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping you can tell us why um, for you supporting and encouraging the next generation of leaders and Merle is so important. Mm. Yeah, I'll, again, I'll try and be brief here, but it is one of the things that presses my buttons. So um, <laughs> there are lots, lots of reasons I could probably share. And, you know, it does come back to your previous question that, you know, part of it is the way I'm wired. I want to see success of something, not necessarily my own success at the expense of everything else. But um, I, th I think defining leadership is really important. Um, at least in the context of Merle, but I would argue beyond Merle. But, you know, Merle for me is all about leading program design and improvement from providing a strong evidence base. So, you know, any of us in that space are leaders, you know, whether we're managing a team or just a project or even a part of a project. Um, so for me, line management is just one level of leadership. 
And I would argue that those of us in line management, um, and maybe this is more my, my European background, we, we need to downplay hierarchy and ensure all team members are able to, to provide some element of leadership in some way. Um, I, I think for research, that's really important because effective research teams really downplay hierarchy. Um, but that's that's probably a, a digression from giving you sensible answers. Um, you know, honestly, the, the main personal reason it's so important to me um, is it's been modeled to me very strongly um, throughout my own career. And it, it's been modeled for me in two ways. One is the system of academia itself. Uh, and the other is, is through really good mentors and, and supervisors I've had. Um, so just quickly, you know, the academic perspective, the academic system, really, if you think about it, at its best is entirely focused on producing the next generation. Uh, whether that's to serve the, the organization itself or, or beyond the organization, it's about producing the next generation. Um, and that's the way that system actually survives and grows in its own effectiveness. Um, so that's one thing the system I was in was geared towards that. Um, from a personal perspective, my own development, my own academic mentors from the outset of bringing me into that fold saw the potential I had and took it seriously um, to, to, to foster that in me. And so they were, they were very proactive in creating and supporting the right opportunities for me um, that served my capacity and also served the organization well. And this is important, including them knowing when it was time for them to step back and make way for me. Um, I had three academic leaders do this for me over my, my time at the university. Um, but importantly, they also stayed around in other roles and, and helped, helped me grow into my role, even when I was in that role. Um, so I think th those, those things are really important. Um, and that taught me something that helped me look at leadership that I saw and look for the problems in a lot of leadership I saw. And that is, dare I say it, leaders can hang on too long, <laughs> um, which is not good for them because it suppresses any new things that they might be able to achieve in different roles. But obviously, for me, it suppresses the energy of the next generation. Um, and so what I like about academia is they capitalize on the fresh and creative energy through regular turning over of, of management roles, um, but they also keep the old guys around um, so that that wisdom and knowledge of the years uh, survives. So, you know, I became my boss's boss several times in my almost 30 years of academia now, um, but it never felt like a hierarchy, you know? Um, and maybe I can get scientific here. In, in developmental psychology, we talk about relational developmental systems, which just means that no relationship or, or teamwork is unidirectional in leadership. Everyone has something to bring. Um, and that's kind of been how I've seen things uh, over, over the years and tried to continue to model what I've seen modeled in me. That's great, yeah. Um, I think what you really touch on too is just that sense of awareness of self 
um, yeah. I guess, in terms of when you can see that that new generation coming on or, or the energy energy that they have, and like you said, make way, but yet know that there is still value for you to add in a different way, in a different role. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I should say, again, maybe it's the way I'm wired, but I, I hope others are wired this way. It's honestly very rewarding to see others thrive and be successful. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you could also say it's also discouraging if everything dies when you leave an organization mm -hmm. because you've controlled it for so long. So there's a little bit of self-serving in that something will of worth will continue beyond you if you've really achieved it and you can take some self-satisfaction from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for those of us who are maybe not as naturally in tuned to engendering this type of leadership development or, or of mindset or um, kind of fostering this, I should say like positive and healthy turnover, how can, how can folks become more mindful of focusing intentionally on leadership development of their colleagues, their teammates, or the direct report, reports, or whatever way they might be leading within their organization? Yeah. Yeah, and lots of, lots of ways spring to mind, but as, I, as I've been thinking about this ahead of time, you know, none of them are are really rocket science they're kind of a lot of them are common sense um i think you know the first way is obviously you know work on your own mindset um what is driving you and if it's if if the priority in your your mindset is you then i think you've got the wrong focus um so i guess a simple way of that is being aware of and controlling your own ego um and really genuinely have uh, an others focus and a purpose focus for for the collective um i think one of my um strength finder strengths my top one actually is connectedness and that's not so much about relationship it's about the big picture so i i really need to see how all the pieces fit together um including my own part in that so seeing the big picture seeing your role in that seeing the role of others in that i think is really important um playing the long game, you know, and build the collective vision, you know, ha have a future focus, but also invest in the journey towards that. So know where you're trying to take the work as opposed to where you're trying to take yourself. Um, another one I think is, I, I would say in most areas, but particularly in Merrill, I think leaders need to make sure they have strong continued professional credibility to lead and so that means making sure of your own professional development and assessing that as you go along you know one of the things i found the bigger our team got and the more responsibility i had as director it was harder for me to stay connected with the reality of the work and and i hated that <laughs> i hate not knowing what my team is doing <laughs> uh, from a from an understanding perspective um and as much as you try, professional development is the first thing to slide. And so you have to be pretty active in that. Um, listening well, that's, um, that goes without saying, but particularly for researchers, we're, we're supposedly good listeners because that's the only way we learn, right? Um, but usually because of the learning we have, we have a lot to say. And even within our own teams, we 
people have a lot to say and I think we can really be in a danger of not listening well. Um, and then just some, again, obvious practical things, but I think you have to be intentional um, and sacrificial about helping others reach their potential. Um, whether that's continually reaching their potential inside your organization or outside your organization. Um, sometimes the best thing for people um, and their own growth and their own kingdom contribution is actually to see that opportunities beyond your current organization is the best for them and best for the organization. Um, I think you have to be also intentional about creating opportunities for others to shine and be stretched. Even if you think you can do that job yourself well. Um, so there's a sacrificial element to that, even from a perspective of thinking, well, I know I can do this well, and they probably won't do it as well, but that's a learning opportunity for them. Um, I could go on. Um, you've mentioned it already, that self-awareness, that self-reflection. Continue to assess where you're at and, and your own limitations in that and know when it's time for others to take over. Um, and the other thing is accept that nobody is 100% ready for leadership, even when they're in the leadership role. Um, so it's about recognizing and building the strengths rather than thinking, oh, they're not ready because they haven't got that capacity or they need a few more years for that. Sometimes you only become a good leader by leading. Um, and that means being stretched in, in that role. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess the last thing I would say there, Kristen, maybe it's just because of my stage in life, but you know, for us who are long-standing leaders of a, a more aging um, demographic, shall I say, we also have to accept that age and experience doesn't necessarily equate to good line management or leadership, um, particularly as context and, and needs change. So we shouldn't just assume because we've been around a long time, we should remain in, in the same role because we're old and experienced. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's all really, really good and practical and relational advice. Um, so I'm wondering too, what you'd say just to, I mean, maybe take this question a little bit further. Um, given the moment that we're all living through in 2020, mm. that seems to extend forever, um, and all the leadership challenges that COVID-19 has brought, uh, especially things like just bringing into an even sharper focus for those of us who are working in international development, um, the challenges of working in these increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. How can today's leaders, in your opinion, be best equipped um, to lead during these uncertain times? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When COVID hit, I read quite a few resources saying because of the uncertainty and the complexity and, and the, the stress, the volatility, uh, it's the wrong time to make major decisions and here we are having completely restructured our teams and changed roles within those teams and all of which I think has been very positive. So I think yes you have to be careful about making decisions under stress but I, I think the opportunities that has brought 
have been positive because we've embraced those opportunities and hopefully done it in a in an informed way rather than a reactionary way. Um, so I think that's that's been important for us and maybe there's a lesson there. It's about seeing the opportunity of the circumstances rather than um, buying into the uncertainty and fear elements that come with it. Um, again, as I was thinking through this, I, th I think of a, I think I've invented a new term, and it's called evidence-based adaptability. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and really, what I'm saying there is, you know, in the moral space, we're supposedly good scientists, right? And good scientists are well equipped for uncertainty, or we should be, um, because we handle it every day. We don't know what we're going to learn, and so we 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 carry out our research. Um, so uncertainty is part of our DNA. It's why science exists in the first place. You know, we want to make sense of our situation. So we ask questions, we, we gather the, the valid learning, we analyze it thoroughly and objectively, and we, we develop theories and, and continue to adapt those theories. So I, I think we need to, scientists are well-placed to respond very positively to these, these VACA environments. Um, and we probably need to remind ourselves of that sometimes. Um, so all of that comes down to ultimately being informed by good evidence um, and being prepared to change direction as that new evidence emerges. Um, you know, and getting more colloquial, you know, we have to increasingly trust the real experts, not the armchair experts, um, both within our own work, but also obviously at a, at a personal level. Um, a few other things that probably continuation of the previous question more than anything, but I think, again, in these heightened VUCA contexts, there is a danger of buckling down more than, than seeing the opportunity. And so things like professional development in a new context mm -hmm. need to be continued, not just uh, ignored. Um, and arguably, this is probably a good time for more professional development because we've probably all got many hours of travel back <laughs> that we should be spending on on, on other things. Um, I, I think a really important thing is it's true for all leadership, but again, in these situations, recognize that good people will deliver best when they feel and are valued and supported. Um, these are intentional behaviors, but they're, I think they're particularly important under times of duress and uncertainty, as long as they're genuine and, and um, particularly in, in these uncertain times. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd say, because I know time's running out, transparency and preparedness to admit your own struggles. Um, again, in Merle, we're all about truth. And that means being honest and open with people about ourselves as well. Um, admitting our own struggles um, in this environment, I think there's a danger, particularly, I would say, in faith-based organizations, we feel the need to rise above the circumstances, to rise above the fear and be, be seen as strong in our faith. None of that is wrong. Um, but I would say as humbly as I can, there's nothing worse than a triumphal leader um, when those they lead are struggling. Um, and issues of 
uh, lament are, are vastly overlooked and yet they're highly biblical. So um, leaders need to admit your, their own struggles and not see that, that as, as weakness. Um, yeah, probably said enough mm-hmm. there. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, thanks a lot, Alistair, for just sharing your thoughts on um, this, yeah, this current moment we're in and the challenges it presents, but also the opportunities. I think it's easy to focus on the struggles and focus on the challenges, but um, yeah, you've, you've emphasized today just a number of areas where I think there's opportunity for, for growth and for development and um, also, yeah, thanks for sharing just your your passion on supporting next generation leaders. And I, for one, have taken a lot away from our time uh, working together. You know, it's only been a couple years, but I feel like I've known you for a long time and, and in many different capacities, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Colleague, boss, now colleague, but in the same organization. So it's, you know, it's great to learn from you in those different um I guess, different relationships that we have, too. Well, it's mutually beneficial, right? Yes. Well, I'd I'd like to think so. (laughs) Don't want it to my own heart. No. (laughs) No, no, I really appreciate that, Kristen. I hope it's it's helpful to your listeners. It's been a bit of a download of stream of consciousness. But, um, yeah, hopefully it's it's of use to some folks. But uh, it's been good to chat. Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks. And I know you've shared with us a couple different resources. I will be listing those in the show notes. And if folks have uh, any questions for you after listening to this or if they'd like to connect, where can they find you online? Find me online? Well, um, my work email, uh, I guess you can just share them rather than me read them out. Is that sure, is that yeah. the best thing? So work email. I am on LinkedIn. I'm not a regular there um though i do get notified when there's there's things there for me so um i'm on linkedin alistair sim all all lowercase one word um so most people can can find me there Uh, i am on facebook again i'm not i'm more of a lurker than a contributor but um uh yeah they can but email is probably the the best way okay great yep so i'll put that in the show notes as well um and yeah thanks again alistair Great. Good to talk to you. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already and email us at ARA at accordnetwork.org to send ideas about who we should talk to next or any other suggestions you have on what you'd like us to unpack on this podcast. Until next time.